Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Sarah McKinnon. Prof. Sarah, it's great to meet you, albeit virtually. And it's great to be here with you. I really appreciate your being here. I'd like to start things off by asking you what's dynamizing you at the moment, what's turning you on, what's preoccupying you, what's interesting you in the world, in your home, wherever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. So I just yesterday got back from a research trip in Mexico, uh, really working on this this new project I um, I'm developing about migration in the Americas, and that's really what's energizing me and on my mind right now. And, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about it and I have ideas about how to develop it. So um, it's really exciting to be at a stage in my career where I get to just really focus on those things that make me excited and energized. And currently, that's it. Like, that's what the project is. And that's an incredibly important topic. And sadly, always contumacious. One of life's great ironies is that Reagan in 86 decided to create a kind of amnesty. Yeah. It would be unthinkable, not only for his horrific party, but the Democrats too, no? in terms of the crucial exchange on behalf of the United States in labor terms. The yeah. great benefits that folks from Mexico and south of the border in general bring to the country. So without giving away any trade secrets of yours, could you tell us what sorts of things, when you wake up, it's probably still dark in Madison when you're waking up, right? What, right? What's occurring to you? What are those thoughts that come to you in those moments that, that yeah. are exciting you, that are making you happy? Absolutely. So that project is, it's a really practically oriented project. What we're trying to do is uh, to rethink what immigration law looks, uh, how we how we envision what immigration law is and does. Um, up to this point, um, typically when we're thinking about the immigration uh, law infrastructure, it's a national infrastructure, right? Like the United States has its own uh, immigration laws. Mexico has their own immigration laws. But increasingly, the experience of migration is a transnational one. Um, people are traversing many countries to arrive at a place where they might um, want to seek residence. Um, and, and yet there's not really a lot of information that's known about the various places they might traverse and the options that they have available for um, seeking residence, applying for refugee resettlement or asylum in various countries. And so this program, what we're trying to do is to connect immigration law clinics to create a, a transnational infrastructure. So, for example, um, someone who perhaps is uh, in Mexico right now, maybe they have transited through South America and Central America and are now awaiting um, in a shelter in uh, Mexico. So they have a couple of options, right? They may apply for refugee status in Mexico, and there's a whole process there. Um, they may be awaiting um, a CBP-1 application to then um, come to the United States for various 
um, opportunities. And along the route, maybe through Costa Rica or Panama or Colombia, there were other options for, for residents and resettlement, but there's not oftentimes a lot of information about those programs. And so our project really is about trying to develop an infrastructure there. The other component is that a lot of people's immigration experiences traverse many um, national infrastructures of law. So, for example, a Haitian mother um, who moves to Colombia and has a kid now has a, a child who's a Colombian national. And then maybe they both keep moving and they're now in Mexico or the United States. So now we're working with like three or four nations and all of a sudden the laws and the infrastructure get really complicated. Um, in essence, the, the project that I'm working collaboratively to develop um, with some of my colleagues here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and at other universities, obviously this is an international project, um, or internationally, um, we're really trying to create an infrastructure for that so that there's a place to go to with um, experts who have a sense of the various types of laws and how they interact. Um, because migration is not experienced nationally, it is absolutely experienced trans transnationally. So we need infrastructures that play into that. And the other part of that, and this is some of uh, what I write about in my rhetorical research, is that the foreign policy collaborations since in particular, I would say with this component, since Clinton's administration in the United States, but also with um, things that were more recent, the foreign policy collaborations have made it such, right, that uh, migration is transnationally experienced. Um, it's really important that in 2022, uh, U.S. along with uh, Mexican heads of state, Central American heads of state, South American heads of state, came together to create the Los Angeles De Declaration, which was really um, what they articulate as an, a regional infrastructure for migration management in the Americas. This is the most recent iteration of that. There are so many others um, and some new work that should be coming out soon. I talk about how that really that buildup really began in the late 1980s and late 1990s, the foreign policy collaborations to manage migration in the region. That's terrific. Into something experiential, I probably spent 100 hours in the rain and the cold outside the Instituto Nacional de Migración in Mexico City, along with thousands of refugees. Yeah. Two groups who went straight to the front of the line always and given privileged access, the Chinese and the Mormons. Yeah. Just straight in. Straight in. And, of course, people who could afford attorneys. Yeah. But the many refugees from Cuba, from El Salvador, from Nicaragua, from Venezuela that were in the lines with me, not such privileged yeah, status. Nada. nada. Nada para ellos y ellas para nada, incluyendo las chicas con Louis Vuitton y todo eso. Yeah. But the group that was clearly discriminated against most was the Cubans. Yeah. I mean, absolutely straightforward. And some of that was about being darker skinned, I think, given yeah. racial hierarchies in, in Mexico. And yeah. some about, you know, the influence of Gringolandia. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. People who are more legitimate than other people. What time frame was that? Like what around what? Um, this was years? 2019 to 2021. Oh, recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because. 
I was, um, believe it or not, when I would finally get to the front of the line, they would call me Hovind. Even though I was 25 years older than my interlocutors within yeah. the, the bureaucracy. But um, obviously, I, I, I'm not suggesting that I was in any sense discriminated against. I wasn't. But I do know what it's like to go through the brutality just of the bureaucratic aspect yeah. and seeing people who were refugees, unlike myself, I was a working migrant, um, suffering. And suffering in ways that were partly encoded through race but didn't really care about class what mattered was the entree you had and that was for the chinese and the and the mormons because there would be 40 or 50 red-headed people wearing white shirts or dresses who would simply float through the rest of us been there from six in the morning till four in the afternoon every day uh, they would arrive the minute that things were open and off they would go. Yeah, yeah. And I think now Comar is the organization in uh, Mexico that manages the refugee applications. Um, I think prior it was everything was run through Instituto Nacional. Um, oh, okay. But now, yeah, so now they split that up. So Comar is the refugee agency and they're handling all refugee applications and processing. But the dynamics that you explain, I think, are still, you know, very much the case with any new agency. It's always, you know, there's a challenge. And so I think that that's true. What I've seen most recently is that Haitian communities are experiencing a lot of um, discrimination, primarily, obviously, you know, race, as you were explaining, plays into this and then language and access plays into yeah, this. Right. You know, there's kind of a, an assumption that Haitian communities will speak French. They don't, you know, often speak French, like Creole will be the primary language. And so there's just not, um, there's not access to that in the same way as you see in other contexts. There's some really fantastic organizations like translation organizations that try to fill in the gaps, but that that dynamic isn't, um, isn't present in the same way as it is in other contexts. Um, And then, you know, I would say also like indigenous communities. So like Guatemalan um, indigenous community, community, indigenous communities from all over the place, I think can really struggle also for those same axes of intersections. Absolutely. And, you know, my story is in a way very insignificant and yet very deeply felt. Oh, and you feel it when you're in those, those, you're like, okay, here's the administration, like that, that like subjugation kind of playing into the experience. I think that's, it's really important that we all speak about those moments of, of uh, really feeling the power of the institution um, as we interact with these institutions. I think also in a lot of contexts for, for, uh, people on the move, just interacting, interfacing with uh, institutions can be really challenging. I know in the context of Mexico, sometimes as simple as like getting, having the right documents, right? And the law states is is that it, you know, that you should be able to access them. But sometimes the particularities of the person you meet at Registro Civil, it's much more complicated that than that. Or, you know, ensuring that a refugee family's kids can go to school, even when they have the right documents. Sometimes the schools will say, no, 
like non non national kids can't come here, and so like those dynamics can be really really challenging. Um, the same happens everywhere, but I think um, you know most recently I was in Mexico learning about that dynamic, so it's definitely on my mind. Well, one of the good things about the lines that I would be in was that everyone would make way for disabled people, yeah. and everyone would make way for young mothers. Yeah. So. In addition to the corruption that was there for the Mormons and the Chinese, I assume, uh, there was also a voluntaristic desire on the part of people in the line to give priority to those who clearly merited it. Everybody, yeah. everybody understood that. I mean, there was never dissent. It was organic. It was immediate to make way for these folks. And I found this very heartwarming. Yeah. The stress that we were all experiencing. Right. Yeah, that re that reminds me of so the dynamic um, in definitions of family between Latin American countries and the United States, for example. So um, for those, for example, who are applying for an, uh, a meeting with CBP through the CBP one app, if they are traveling with children who are not biological children. So let's say like a grandma with their with their grandkids, like they are not considered family in the same way. And so they will experience separation. Whereas in Latin American context, like family's family, right? Even the def the definition through the migration system, like family is, you know, grandmas, it's aunts, like it's a pretty wide sense of who yeah. family is. And that just, I think, does so much toward making one feel like their humanity is valued and their experiences are recognized and valued. Prof, one of the major themes in your work, along with immigration, is violence. Mm -hmm. and in particular, gendered violence, these are, are crucial and often almost always tragic topics and, of course, extremely relevant when we think about life in much of Latin America. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that played out at the moment in horrific ways. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the work you've done on gendered violence. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I like to make a distinction between research that examines the experience of gendered violence and research that's examining the discourse of gendered violence. And I would definitely put my work into the latter. Um, while it's always paying attention to the experiences, I think that that's very, very important. But in my work, I've tended to look at how, how gender-based violence is politicized um, in interesting ways. And by that, I mean, when it's taken up to be something that we should advocate against and really, you know, uh, organize various actions against. And when it's not, because I think that disconnects can, can be can be uh, very important and it could speak a lot about um, you know, various agendas that are at play. So with the work that I did in the book Gendered Violence or Gendered Asylum, what I really tried to do is to look at the category and the construct of gender and gender-based violence and ask, when is when are US immigration judges and the U.S. kind of political infrastructure in general recognizing this as political violence? And when are they not? And and why? Like, what's behind the answer? What's behind the answer that um, 
genital surgeries in African countries can widely be seen as a form of gender-based violence that is political in nature um, and should be given protections, um, you know, gender uh, refugee protections. And why is it that domestic violence from Central America and Mexico is not recognized as political in nature and should be protected as a form of refugee protection. And so like that is that tends to be where in terms of my work, I focus on the on the way it's talked about and the why the warrants behind, because I think that says a lot about how um, states and institutions, what, what their what their political interests are. I think it can give us a lot of sense about what their their political interests are. And then when I move, I move from that work to really think about violence rhetoric as a category itself, um, to say that it's especially in political discourse, this does something. And when we look at the way in which violence is, is talked about as a problem, we get a sense of a state's or an institution's um, interests. Um, in the context of Mexico and Latin America, I mean, violence happens everywhere, right? Um, but but in the context, especially of Mexico, if I narrow in on that, uh, I think it was really fascinating to see how, you know, post 2000, it was around 2005 that U.S. political officials and media really ran with a story of Mexico as this violent, violent place. And of course, that's all we hear now, right? Like that's the primary narrative of the country, um, sicarios and cartels and just like all sorts of things. And when political officials and policy organize around that, I'm always interested in what that's doing. Um, so that's where that project has kind of taken me to think about that. It's it's moved a little bit, I would say now I, I, I'm mostly focused on foreign policy and how it organizes through questions of violence. Um, but but it, it's a powerful concept, right? Like I think nobody on its surface, nobody is going to say, you know, I'm pro most people are not going to say I'm pro-violence. And so it's a hard, it's a hard frame to argue against. And I also then think that's where its power is. I agree. Although the doctrine of just war is immensely influential in the United States, because mm. like Britain, lunatics in the Washington establishment and in the primary discourse of international relations have one thing they think they did right, which is to defeat the Nazis and mm -hmm. Japanese fascism, never mentioning the Soviet Union. When I became a U.S. citizen, uh, the correct answer to the question, who won the Second World War, could only involve three countries, someone called somewhere called England, which of course, doesn't exist as a sovereign state. Right. <laughs> Who America, that? which doesn't exist as a sovereign state, and France, which last I looked was putting Jews on trains to go to Auschwitz, etc. The Soviet Union, which committed maybe 25 million deaths as part of the struggle against Nazism, was not an acceptable answer. Oh, fascinating. This was under Obama, when I felt for the first time that I could semi-legitimately apply to become a gringo, you know? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, more fool me. But it is interesting, <laughs> I think, to ponder this question of the just war, yeah. because 
lurking within a discourse that, as you say, will argue on an everyday basis, I'm not in favor of violence. He's a dominant position in the United States everywhere, which is absolutely in favor of violence. That's a really good uh, addition to what I just said. And I think um, especially what's been occurring in the Ukraine context has made me think about contexts of, of just war and how, you know, international um, law frameworks um, help us to think about what that is, but also how, you know, like while there may be an ideal of it, of just war, right? Like, is that ever uh, that I don't think that there's an actual example of that, but um, that's helped me to think about that from, I'll have no, to think I mean about it's a useful heuristic, isn't it? There's mm -hmm. no doubt about that. Nevertheless. So nevertheless, like it, it undergirds all state making, right? Like violence is part and parcel of all state ma making. And yeah. I mean, Weber, a wonderful theorist, unfortunately brutalized by United States bullshit functionalist sociology of the post-war period, but a genius talking about how, you know, the definition of a state is that it has the monopoly on legitimate violence. Yeah, 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 that's really it's interesting. It's just an incredible insight. Prof, I wonder if we could go off on one tangent here, because about a third of the people who tune into this podcast are based in the U.S. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't have ideological information about their proclivities, only... <laughs> only they, that they listen that's good you know where you live but i don't know more <laughs> than that right so rhetoric forensics debate speech communication these concepts that are not identical but are important in the united states are completely opaque to most people in the rest of the world could yeah. you for a moment run us through what they signify and tell us what your analytic frames are, which don't only include rhetorical analysis, but that's part of your toolkit, I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. Well, I can take a stab at a few of those. I don't know if I'll get through all of them, but I'll try. So when I think about rhetoric, I think about it as um, an examination of how words and messages matter. So my, my basic question is always, what is the practical function of language? So when we, you know, put a message out there, or even, I mean, I think messages can even be visual, right? Like when we construct a visual message, what is it doing? What are those elements doing? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I think the base for me is a sort of semiotic analysis, although always with a question of the the doing, what is this doing as it circulates in the world? So when I think about something like, um, you know, the difference between reproductive justice and abortion, um, those those concepts do different things um, rhetorically. So for me, the rhetoric is that it's the the construction of a message and the intention behind it as we're as we're paying um, attention. And so there is some connection to the sort of common use of the word rhetoric. Oh, that's just rhetoric, right? To mean like maybe it's empty or it's like doesn't have any any substance behind it. I would say, in fact, it does. All messages have some substance behind them. It may not be the substance you want, but there's something there, right? And so um, that for me is rhetoric. I connect it to it our, in our field. Historically, we've looked at public discourse as um, as the main like 
the meat of what we're examining. So public discourse comes in the form of speeches and messages that are tent- intended for some, some public. Um, some have narrowed it to be even more specific. So when they're talking about public address, they're really talking about speeches of, you know, historical figures and whatnot. Um, I like to think of it in a little bit more wide manner. So for me, for example, when I analyze, um, uh, a legal case, the, the material, the arguments in a legal case, I'm analyzing public matter. I'm analyzing public discourse. These are materials that circulate in, in, um, various publics. When I'm analyzing congressional hearings, the same, right? Like those are materials that are cir- circulating. Um, and the same could be true of something like, you know, a television, uh, sitcom or, um, a film. So really when we're doing rhetorical analysis, kind of anything is up for grabs. Um, in terms of the analysis, I like to always think about like, what's the, what's significant about it. So for me, it's less about, you know, um, really like materials that don't have a lot of impact or that aren't widely seen or viewed. There should be some sort of impact. And a part of my task as an analyst, an analyst is to make that clear for my reader. Like, what's the impact? Um, forensics, I do not feel qualified to talk about that because I was not in speech and debate back in the day. Many of the folks that are now um, scholars of rhetoric were in speech and debate, so they would be much better prepared to talk about that. And then the other thing that I think is really helpful to, to know about rhetoric is that in the United States, at least two traditions of rhetoric emerged early on in the early 1900s. One that was really developed from speech communication departments, and then another that was in English departments. One was much more focused on the the um, you know the presentation, so the verbal component, uh, and that would be the speech side, and the other on the writing and composition. Nowadays, I think you see a lot of back and forth between uh, rhetorical studies scholarship in in both fields, but they both still exist, at least here in the United States. And then outside of the United States, I would say that this has been really curious to me. I recently took over as the director of Latin American, Caribbean and Iberian studies at the University of Wisconsin. And so I'm always curious when I go to different places, like where's rhetoric? And and so um, you do see, you know, lots of communication departments and some amazing, amazing um, universities in the Americas. But then there are also argumentation scholars that I think are doing things that are really resonant with what is happening in um, some rhetoric programs. Discourse analysis certainly is a place where you see that. Um, and yeah, folks working on like political communication, political discourse. So that has been really fun to track. Where I am at the Complutense in Madrid, we have some fantastic people doing that kind of work, like Eva Adrovico and others. I That's guess- what I am. <laughs> your pardon? I, I figure that was the case. The argumentation um, frame is really strong in a lot of places. And um, it's exciting to see. I like reading that work. I think one of the things about the U.S. is that, at least initially, this was largely restricted to the spine of the country, mm-hmm. west down to the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that portrays its origins in the reform era, at least as I understand things, 
and the desire to create an industrial proletariat and a farming working class that couldn't speak English when it arrived, Swedes, Norwegians, etc., to give them a way of speaking that became modelled on Ohio English, what we now call NBC English, and that would not inflect them in any way in terms of black English or Latino English or Latina English and would be not very regional. Right. I mean, that was one of the big projects of the reform era, era, you know. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. Which, But of course, it's much more interesting now. Yeah. And so Dwight Conkergood has a really great article that traces that history exactly. I can't remember the exact title. It's in text and performance quarterly, but really helping us understand the classist, racist, just the all of these intersections of the history of um, speech communication departments. And it was really about a formation of a particular, um, uh, you know, educated uh, subject um, that could speak in particular ways. And so I, you know, whenever I teach um, like rhetorical criticism or the like kind of our base level graduate classes, I always assign that text because i think it's really helpful to know like this is this is a part of your history right like there was a there was a formation of a particular way of speaking that's a part of um the of what we do today and not only speaking also it was about you know having particular gestures for folks just listening i'm like widely gesturing right now (laughs) (laughs) you know it that was also a part of it It was also corporeal um subjugation And Prof, you could, your students are not old enough to watch broadcast television news because the profile is people oh, who are older than you on up. Yeah. <laughs> but if they were to tune in, they would see a white man my age, a white woman your age as the sort of second or third wife in the model, <laughs> a Lat- um, or a Latina your age as the second or third wife, a Latina doing the, the weather, a black man doing in-the-field reporting, etc., etc. But they would be speaking NBC English. They would be speaking Ohio English. They would be using the gestures that you're talking about, right? I mean, in yeah, many ways, none of that has changed. So you could get your students to read Dwight Conkergood's piece and then say, here's this thing you'll never have heard of. It's called CBS. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's true also in journalism departments. So that's another split that happens in US um institutions that usually like the the rhetoric and speech communication department is separate from journalism, but what you're describing I think is absolutely right on. The same training was happening in journalism programs. I think some of the big ones are like the Missouri um, Journalism School is really huge. It was well known for training broadcasters across the country. Um, University of Wisconsin also is big, although we have split departments. Uh, So that's, it's an interesting element to think about how those departments shift. Could I go back to something you gave as an example? Sure. That I think would be interesting to learn more about, which is where I think you you juxtaposed, I wrote it down, which shows that it must have been important, right? I've been uh, reading today about how definitively people know things better when they write them physically with a I pen. Think I subscribe to that method. So you juxtaposed, I think, reproductive justice versus or and abortion rights. Uh-huh. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that, please? 
the the juxtaposition I was making is just in the words themselves. So when you think about the word abortion and all of the the stuff that comes with it. So the rest of the discourse discourse that circulates around that, I think it conjures something different in your brain than saying something like reproductive justice, which might, you know, include something like um, abortion services. But it, that also has a different history. It conjures something differently. So if I was uh, a politician or if I was, I don't know, if I was making a message for the public and I was trying to, and maybe it was about these themes, right? And I was thinking about, okay, what, what, what audience? First of all, I always ask, like, what audience am I trying to to speak to? Um, I probably would start there. Okay, so, and then what is my message? Uh, and then little by little, you you start to to get a sense of which of those words, those concepts, might appeal. Uh, might coincide with your message and appeal to that audience. Um, in rhetorical studies, and I think, you know, rhetoric making in general, a lot of what we're trying to figure out is how does audience connect to context, connect to message? Like, how do you put all of those things together? And, and then, you know, at the at the most minute level, and maybe this isn't even the most minute, but one of the minute levels the words really matter. The specific concepts and labels that we use um, uh, conjure different things. Um, so that's kind of what I was getting at. Not to suggest that they're necessarily different, but to say they do different things rhetorically. Understood. And I think that pragmatics is an important contribution that you've made. If I can go back, back, back in baseball parlance, looking at your intellectual background, academic background, you studied in Tempe. Uh, does that mean you're from a border state, can I ask, biographically? Well, I grew up in Michigan, so I am from a border state. Because... <laughs> but at the other end of the country. <laughs> you got me. You got me. <laughs> yes. So I am from a border state, but not from that border state. Um, but yeah, I, d living in Arizona was definitely definitely formative to the work that I do now. Um, I mean, that was the early two thousands when I was there. Primarily, I did my master's and PhD at Arizona State in Tempe, and I think a lot of what we see in immigration politics now, um, you could feel there as a precursor. It already felt really, really uh, militarized and criminalized, like all of these things that we hear and talk about today. Um, but it, it is now just more amplified and nationwide. And so while I was there, um, yeah, I mean, I started to do some of the qualitative work that I do now with refugee communities that really began there. <clears throat> and then also, uh, I started to work with, uh, like legal rights services, immigrant and uh, legal rights services, specifically the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project there. So that was really formative to what I do now. That's a great organization. I still stay in touch with them. They're fantastic. They are, it's a pro bono uh, group of lawyers who are situated, well, now they're actually statewide. But when I was there, they were, their offices were in Florence, Arizona. It's this little, little town in between Phoenix and Tucson where three detention centers uh, exist. So there's the 
federal detention center. The state prison is there, and I'm forgetting another one. I'm sure it's just ramped up even more, um, but uh, that was really formative to see. Oh, my dog is bothering me right now. Sorry. That is really formative to see, um, yeah, just how, how what immigration looked like then, and certainly now that helps me to think about it. Oh, I can hear your cute dog. Fortunately, the podcast has left us alone. But oh, good. yeah, his name is Chinguri, which is <laughs> or Ormiga. And, okay. you know, and he's a weird name for a cat. So my younger daughter renamed him Naranja because he's sort of orange, but he's actually vanilla come peach, I think. What's your oh, dog called? What's your, I wish you would join us. <laughs> so your dog is how old? Uh, baby girl is her name, and she <laughs> she came with that name. She was rescued from Birmingham, Alabama, and she came to Wisconsin with the name Baby Girl, and that has just remained. She is probably uh, two and a half, three years at this point, and she's a pit bull, a gray pit bull, and and more her name is her, she's more like her name than she is like the reputation of her of breed. Of the breed. Yeah, <laughs> quite. Well, Chinguri, I mean now known as Naranja, uh was also a so I mean so called I mean a street cat, a street yeah. kitten. Uh it's illegal now in Spain to sell pets. You can't buy them. Um one of the few. And then do you just go, do you go to a rescue? Is that basically what's ha what happens now? Prof, I was excluded from all the rescue entities in Madrid because I was deemed to not be from una familia adecuada. In serio? In serio. <laughs> so you have to list, you know, are you married? Are you divorced? What is your salary? <laughs> It's totally class. It's like and worse than like being, you know, getting citizenship somewhere, right? <laughs> exactly. Class and religion based. So I failed on all scores, but I had a an ultimately sort of not very fun internet date with someone. Who okay. Was, but who was very kind to me because this person was part of a a WhatsApp group in her barrio where people okay. write about things. And there was a a frankly very nutty couple who at any one time had 23 pussycats. Oh, no, that's a lot. <laughs> and so you went along. They lived out completely in the boonies. I mean, really yeah. in the boonies. So I had to go out and be – I thought I was going out to collect the pussycats, so I came with my little cat. <laughs> <family. laughs> but little did I realize I was being interviewed. Okay. And the woman in the couple said – I'm an important economist. Could you get me a job at the Complutense? Oh, wow. Anyway, event, I was told to go home and come back in a week. I came uh -huh. back in a week, and this time I was from Una Familia Arequara, and so I got him. Lucky you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I passed the test. I did not secure her a job at the Complutense as Professor of Economics, <laughs> but I think the only reason was that she ended up not sending me the CV that I had requested. Anyway, okay. Okay. enough of my exciting life as a human <laughs> to other animals. So if we can, uh, we've got a, about 10 minutes left, Prof. Sarah. I'd like to ask you a couple more questions and then throw it back to you to add or subtract anything you might wish to do. Yeah, Sounds great. Okay. First question is, 
please visit Spain so I can introduce you to my oh. retor friends, right? Oh, my goodness. Just send me an invitation and I'll be there. Like, I'm happy to. As a, as the director of Latin American, Caribbean, and Iberian studies, like uh, that's that's well within my wheelhouse. And Actually, Iberi- I think I'll be I'll be in uh, Portugal this summer, so maybe we can make something work. It would be great if you could visit some of the folks here because I'm sure Perfect. they. What, what does your semester structure look like? What's that? Uh, we finish probably not that you know. Obviously, it varies a lot in the U.S. as people from outside it should know, but. Really, we finish pretty early in May. Okay. And a bit like Paris, there's no one in Madrid apart from losers like me who have to look after little pussycats um, in <laughs> August in particular. Absolutely nobody. They've all fled. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. Anyway, um, my my question after saying, please visit us because it would be great to uh, connect you to people. I'm very pleased that Madison includes Iberianism because – so often that's not included with Latin American Caribbean studies, and actually it really should be for a whole variety of reasons. You know, Los Gachupines, they're, you know, criminals of, of history, but nothing compared to the British. So <laughs> uh, the question I wanted to ask you first of the two that I'm going to conclude my interrogation with is asking you really how you find shit out. Oh. How, do you, how do you discover things? And you've given us some hints, but if I'm a biologist or a chemist or an economist, considering you for promotion to distinguished university professor at the University of Wisconsin, one of the things I'm going to ask you is, so how do you know these things? Mm. Right? I think the answer is different depending on what stage of inquiry I'm at. So my First answer would be, I like to talk to people. And I just oh, like to ask a lot of like, beautiful, you know, beautiful. like really just basic questions, you know, and, and I like to talk to uh, all ranges of people, like everyone from, you know, the person that's driving me around in taxis to, to state officials. I just like, I start with talking to people because I think that you can get a really good sense of, um, I don't know, the questions you should be asking from that. I think that's a really nice um, um, basis to that. And that answer doesn't end. I think that that's the through line for all of my work is that the the asking questions and talking to people usually is is the way I uh, I move through my personal inquiries, but also my more scholarly inquiries. Um, you know, I'm from a family, very blue collar family. So like that is... Um, that's a, that's also a through line, like the everyday people, that's usually where, where the the real good questions are. And so that's typically where I would start. Um, and then as I move, you know, I think as you get more information or you have more like fine tuned questions, you can get into more details. That's where like documents and more formalized interviews, things like that can be really useful. Um, Google stalking, not Google stalking, but, you know, like deep dive wormholes into like figuring out people's life histories, like that can be really helpful at that point um, if it's available. Uh, And then the question about like, how do you know what you know? Um, This is something that's really important for me, you know, like as someone who straddles humanities and social science, I think it is helpful for us to ask, well, where's the evidence, right? Like, where's the empirical um, demonstration of what 
uh, of what you're saying, but always with a sense that arguments and analysis are really important um, to to for understanding the world around us. And so my rhetorician side says, you know, like we need scholars and, you know, everyday, um, you know, people to to really think about, well, well, what do you think is happening here? What's, you know, what argument would you make about what's happening here? And then to look for evidence to support that. But it's okay to to have an analysis that says, you know, this is my interpretation of what I think is going on. Uh, here's Here's some evidence that I can prove that connects those links. Certainly, I'm never looking for like, uh, you know, causal or correlative relationships in that way. But I think we we need arguments in the world. We need analysis that helps us make sense of what's happening. Um, and then it's on the it's on the audience of that writing or speech or whatever it is to judge, right? Like the audience still gets to evaluate and say, like, well, does this resonate to me? And so if I, as a critic, uh, have not done the work to demonstrate that, that's on me. Like that, 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 that argument work is on me, but, um, that's, that was, yeah, that's my like two cents answer to that question. No, no, thank you. Unfortunately, you've given me a preferred new last question. I'm dumping okay. the one that I originally had, which is you said blue collar as part of your yeah. origin. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that in terms of what that means to you when it comes to your formation and the spectacles, if if you like, that you wear as a consequence of that point of origin. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, my I think that having family members that worked in factories or that, you know, were a part of really strong Midwest unions um, that maybe didn't obtain the level of education that I obtained, that that really helped me to see that, um, you know, I've made sense of this later, but it, it made me aware that power does exist. There are different stratifications of power and that, you know, having a particular professional class, speaking a particular way, um, having a particular education, all of these things can really shape um, the access that you have to power and voice, to resources, to institutions. And like my upbringing was in the middle of all of that, right? I would say that for me, working class still was very much, um, you know, a U.S. middle class um, life existence. But in the midst of that, I could see the the various dynamics. I could see family members that were definitely, um, uh, you know, they were struggling to finish high school and or maybe they didn't finish high school. And that then impacted significantly their their access um, to resources later on. Um, and it was of no fault of their own. It was just like, you know, these these things compact in, I think, really um, important ways. And so for me, that has shaped my attention to inter the intersectional um, dimension of identity, the intersectional dimension of lived experience, um, to always be attentive to that. Um, certainly things like gender and sexuality and race, that came later in my consciousness. Um, um, certainly that's been something that I've developed and continue to develop. Um, but... As I do work on immigration contexts now, I think about that, that a lot. Like I think about why, for example, someone may need to leave uh, 
Colombia and move or why someone may need to leave Cameroon and move like that, that I think my, my, my upbringing helps me have answers to that question. I could, I can get why um, that might be the case. Thanks so much. Prof, like to throw it to you now. Oh, I can't hear you now. You can't hear me? have asked me I don't think so I think I'm really good about um, what uh, we've discussed this was a really fun conversation and I do hope we get to meet in person sometime soon hopefully in Madrid I'd love to visit you there thank you